0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. A few years back, my uncle was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And um, he had this period where he was describing to, to my dad that he would go out driving and uh, would get lost. He didn't recognize where he was. You know? So he's driving around. He doesn't realize this, but he has Alzheimer's and he gets lost. So he would just drive around till he found a landmark that he recognized and then uh, try and piece away back home because he was lost. He didn't know where he was. And that was becoming more and more frequent. See, my uncle had two different problems going on First, he was not where he was supposed to be. And secondly, he didn't know how to get there. I wonder today if churches today need a map, gotten lost amidst the world's pressures, and we have no way, uh, seemingly we've forgotten how to get back to where we should be. Uh, today, we have all of these things happening around us. We have uh, social issues. We have political pressures. We have all of these things, not to mention just the work life that we have. We have kids at home. We have pressures at work. We have all of these things kind of mounting upon us. And the everyday Christian, it's really easy for us to feel like we've lost our way, to feel like we're kind of lost and we're looking for some kind of landmark that we can kind of identify so we know how to get back home. This morning, as we're in our text this morning, in John chapter 16, Jesus has been speaking to these disciples about what life is going to be like after he's not with them. And he's given them hope and saying, hey, it's better for you for me to go away so that the helper, the Holy Spirit will come and he's going to guide you into all truth. And as you listen to that truth, as you abide in my love and in my word, you'll bear much fruit. But here, as he kind of closes out this speech before he gets into this high priestly prayer in chapter 17, he Gives us, as it were, a road map. He gives a map to these disciples that will tell them of the difficult things to come, but also of the peace and overcoming of the world that he's intending to bring. See, here's our big idea in John chapter 16. It says, because Jesus is victorious, you and I can have peace amidst the world's turmoils and troubles. Because Jesus is victorious, you and I can have peace. We're going to see this in three different sections in our text this morning. First, uh, the disciples, Jesus tells them that the disciples will know the Father in verses 25 through 28. And then secondly, the disciples think they know more than they actually do in verses 29 through 32. And then finally, Jesus describes this coming peace specifically in verse 33. And we kind of just want to dive in this morning to this last section of Jesus's upper room teaching until he gets to this prayer in John 17. So let's start in verses 25 through 28. The disciples are going to know the Father. Listen to Jesus's words here. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus starts and he says he promises this time when he's going to speak plainly to them about the Father in verse 25. So he's, he's described that he's, he's spoken to them in figures of speech. He's spoken to them in these obscure abstractions. And we're not just talking about part of his speech. The subject matter here in all of John 13 through 16 is hard for these disciples to understand. Remember, Jesus has been talking about going away. He's been talking about this helper, the Holy Spirit. He's been talking about being attached to the true vine. And all of these references would have been hard to piece together before Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, just a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus says, you're not able to handle all the things that I have to tell you right now. I'm going to hold some of these things later until you've received the helper, the Holy Spirit, and he will guide you into all truth. See, a time is coming, Jesus is describing here, that a time is coming when he will speak openly. Look at verse 25. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you about the Father plainly, or tell you plainly about the Father. Disciples are going to know openly about who the Father God is. Jesus has spoken by the Spirit. About the Father for us now, as we read it in our New Testament, right? We have this Word of God recorded for us through the oversight of the Holy Spirit, so that when you and I open the epistles that are recorded for us in the New Testament, we have this unpacking of who God is. See, while Jesus spoke to these disciples in abstractions, he promises to soon speak with clarity to his disciples through the Spirit. Theologians have this term. It's called perspicuity. That's a mouthful right there. Perspicuity. It means clarity, right? Burke Parsons is a a pastor down in Florida, and he highlights the the funny nature that we use a word that's big called perspicuity to describe that something's clear and knowable, right? This essential doctrine, it says this, that the, the essential things of the faith are clearly stated in the Scriptures, That Jesus is God, that he's preexistent, that he's existed forever, that he came into the world as an incarnate God-man, fully God-fully man, and that he laid down his life for the forgiveness of sins so that sinners like you and I could be forgiven and brought into the Father's presence. See, Jesus tells his disciples that there's there's coming a day, a time when he will uh, teach them fully about the Father. They will receive clear teaching on who the Father is. But that's not the only thing he has to say about the relationship they have to the Father. He also talks a little bit about prayer here in verse 26, right? Jesus won't have to relay their questions or their their statements to, to God. Excuse me. Look at verse 26 and what it says. If I can find it. There it is. In that day you will ask in my name, but I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. See, Jesus is telling them here that he's a mediator, not a medium. You're saying, that's a great distinction, Jason, what the heck does it mean? A mediator is one who brings two parties together, right? It's the the hostage crisis, the one who brings the police and the uh, criminal together, right? Gets them to sit down at the table. This mediator is the one who reconciles differences. He brings these two parties together. That's what Jesus has done for us. He brought us and our sinful rebellion to the table with God the Father so that we could be reconciled together through the blood of Jesus Christ. But, but a medium is like the, the spiritualist. Have you ever uh, seen these people? They like their eyes roll in the back of their head and they talk to the people of, of another realm, as it were. Uh, And everything that's stated to the person on the other side, as it were, has to be stated through this person. That's what a medium is supposedly is supposed to be, or at least what Hollywood thinks that is. Jesus is a mediator and not a medium. He will not be the one speaking or relaying these prayer requests back to the Father. We now, through Jesus' blood, have confident access before his throne. But notice what Jesus is advocating here. The disciples are to envision a time when they can relate directly to the Father God because the Father loves him, loves them. They can go directly to God with their cares and concerns. In fact, from this passage, we might just kind of say like the normative pattern of prayer is to the Father through the blood of Christ or in the name of Christ and in the power of the spirit. John Piper notes that there are times in the new Testament where we are to pray maybe to Jesus. Like uh, the Bible actually closes with this statement at the end of revelation, where it says, come Lord Jesus. It's a prayer directed to Jesus Christ. But typically we would find this to be true, that we would pray to the father in the name of the son through the spirit. That should be the typifying work of prayer. It doesn't mean that you never pray to the Spirit or never pray to the Son, but it means that typically we're approaching the Father God who plans in the name of our Redeemer, Christ, through the power of the indwelling Spirit who also prays for us. That seems to be the way that we pray in line or in the grain or in line with the grain of of how God works. Notice what he says next in verses 27 through 28. The Father loves them because of their belief in Jesus. That's what he says there in verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Note the extra word there, himself. The Father himself loves you. It's emphasizing that Jesus isn't the only one who loves these disciples. The Father also loves them. It's not sufficient to simply say that Jesus loves us. As astounding as that is, John 3.16 actually tells us that Jesus was sent by the initiation of the love of the Father, right? God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Or Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, the Father loves those whom he has, His Son has saved, such that He's pursued them in Christ. But notice this basis of God's love here. The Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The basis of our love from the Father is our belief in Jesus. Jesus. Remember back in chapter 15, as we've been going through this upper room discourse, Jesus uh, told us that if we keep his commandments, that we would abide in his love. And that if we uh, abided in his love and that we abided in his word, that we would bear much fruit. And here it's kind of a similar state. It's, it's by our belief and love for Jesus that we are loved by the Father because we believe Jesus has come from the Father. Jesus or the Father responds with this loving, gracious kindness to us. Jesus goes on in verse 28, and he describes that he actually is from the Father. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Now, we just got to put all these pieces together, right? We just said like this huge mouthful of theology, right? We just kind of unpacked all of this thickness and fullness of what Jesus is saying, and let's pull all of these pieces together. See, the, the upshot of all of this is that Jesus connects us with the Father, That's what Jesus is kind of getting at. Look at at what he says, that Jesus came from the Father. Jesus tells us of the Father, and that we are loved by the Father by our belief in Jesus. That's what he says. He starts first, and we'll see in verse 28, that Jesus came from the Father. That Jesus tells us in verse 28 that he came from him, and he's going back to him. And by the way, nobody else does this. Nobody else can claim that they came from God. Nobody else can claim that they're going back to God without the work of Jesus. Well, they might make the claim, but they're not right. They're just crazy, right? The second thing he shows us is that Jesus tells us of the Father. Not only has he come from the Father, he's the one who's divulging the Father to us. He doesn't speak in these veiled metaphors. He doesn't speak in obscurity anymore. He's unpacked for us the fullness and glory of the Father God. Through the inspiration of the Spirit as recorded in the New Testament, God has, or Jesus has told, plainly told us about the Father through the Spirit. And by believing in Jesus, we are loved by the Father so that we love Jesus and believe him and we enter into this new status with the Father so that we're loved by him. Guys, this is like really good news, right? Because if we remember back to John chapter three, at the close of John chapter three, Jesus told us that whoever doesn't believe in him has the wrath of God abiding on him. That you and I, when we're in this natural state of rebellion against God, the thing that we've earned is the wrath and anger of God, deserving the judgment of God. But now Jesus is declaring to us, not that we're under God's wrath and anger, now because of belief in Jesus Christ, we are under his love and care. That's good news, right? You guys are like so hum this morning, right? Man, that's good news. Wake up, right? This is good news to those who are stuck in their sinfulness, who were buried in their guilt and transgression. We are no longer stuck under God's wrath. We are recipients of love through the Father and in Jesus Christ. So Jesus then came from the Father, spoke of the Father, and becomes the means by which we're accepted by the Father, so that Jesus is divulging what this life with the Father looks like. Just to kind of put this in perspective, let's just imagine this morning that tomorrow you're going to try and get a meeting with the president of the United States. Forget who the current president or past presidents are, just theoretically imagine a president of the United States that you're trying to get a a meeting with at some point. The truth of the matter is that probably nobody in this room has the clout to make that happen. We can write our letters We can set up camp outside the White House. We can send him Christmas gifts. We can do whatever else it takes, but we will not get a meeting with the president of the United States. But imagine now that you have a friend who's really good friends with the president. And as you discuss that with this friend of yours, this mutual friend, he describes to you who the president is and what he likes. He likes kale soup, by the way, you should join us for soup this afternoon, right? He likes kale soup. He distrusts anyone who's under five foot, four inches tall. He plays Parcheesi on Friday nights. That's what the president is. And he's describing the president. And then one day your friend says to you, hey, by the way, let's go meet the president. And he brings you and ushers you into the presence of something that you had no access to before. See, Jesus is our friend in high places. And he loves to introduce us to the one whom he truly loves. He loves to introduce us to his his father. Now, here's what's fascinating about this passage. Jesus has just told his disciples that uh, he's speaking to them in figures of speech, and someday down the line, he will speak to them with clarity. But his disciples are just absolutely assured that they understand. Look at verse 29 through 32 with me this morning. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly The disciples claim this understanding of him in verses 29 through 30, right? It's just kind of an awkward statement, right? Oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now I'm understanding you, Jesus. And he's just told them that they wouldn't understand him. See, the disciples claim to understand him right now. And whatever verses 29 through 30 get right about Jesus, they also get something deeply wrong Jesus has just described to them how he's speaking to them in figurative speech and will soon, not now, but soon speak to them clearly about the Father. And it's in response to this and say, no, 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 Jesus, we understand. You are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Don Carson says this in his commentary. He says, no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. So right? So here's these disciples. They're just absolutely convinced that they know what's going on, that they understand what's happening, right? I've used this illustration before I was in high school and I used to park cars at a country club. And I drove an, a, a standard transmission and a, a stick. And this other guy who was with me, only drove automatics. And so sure enough, this brand new BMW Z3 pulls up and I've been waiting to drive one of these cars, you know? So it pulls up and I'm kind of licking my chops, getting ready. Well, this guy jumps in right before me to drive this car. I said, Tim, you don't know how to drive stick. This is a manual transmission. You can't drive this. And he looks back at me, he looks me directly in the eyes and he says, I know how to drive stick theoretically. That word was important, wasn't it? Theoretically. See, the only thing that outdid his confidence was his incapability. Here he was at the precipice of doing something that he wasn't able to do, but he was so confident because theoretically he understood what it took. And so what happens is he grinds the BMW into gear, tries to pull off, and literally the owner of the car runs after him and pulls him out of the car and goes and parks it himself. See, the disciples are so sure that they understand that we get the distinct sense that they don't. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus highlights in his response in verses 31 and 32. Look at what he says. He says, do you now believe? Now notice this is interesting, right? Jesus has just said, it's because you believed me and loved me that the Father loves you. But now he's saying, do you really believe? See, what Jesus is highlighting is that each one is going to be scattered. Each one will go to his home. By the time Jesus is crucified, at the scene of Jesus' crucifixion, only John is present there. And we might stop and say, wait a minute, Jesus is wrong. Uh, J- John stayed the whole time, but notice that John doesn't also get arrested. John isn't also crucified next to Jesus. John was present, but he wasn't sticking up for Jesus either. And it's, it kind of culminates to the fact that when, when the gospel closes out, it's Peter and John that are there when Jesus has to say, feed my sheep. So Jesus is highlighting this unbelief. These disciples are going to run. This belief, belief that they claimed in verses 29 and 30 is going to fail them. And the whole thing kind of sounds familiar, right? Because remember back in chapter 13 when, when Peter was like, no, I would die for you. And, and Jesus is looking back at him at the end of John 13 and saying, no, before the rooster crows three times, you, you'll have, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. This has to be kind of a a blow to the psyche of these disciples, doesn't it? After all, they, they had shown their utmost confidence in him. They just made this statement, we know that you know all things. They had this kind of confidence that Jesus was exactly who he claimed he was. But here they are, they're met with this statement from Jesus. Do you now believe do we see this? That Jesus affirms their belief and also challenges their unbelief. Jesus affirms the disciples believe in verse 27: the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. There seems to be little question that these, these disciples are, are believers. And Jesus affirms that they are loved by God because their belief and, and their love for him. But Jesus is also challenging their sense of belief in verse 31. He highlights the coming failure of their faith. Instead of standing next to the one who came from God, they would scatter back to their houses. Instead of bearing his cross with them, they would deny even knowing him. Maybe you're here this morning and this feels a little bit like you. You're this mixture of belief and unbelief. You're this kind of hot and cold There's places that the Scriptures describe us, people like us that struggle to consistently put together a life of faith that that consistently lives out the faith that it claims. In Mark chapter 9, there's this man whose son is demon-possessed. And and he says to Jesus, if you're able, and Jesus kind of responds to that and says, if I'm able. And the man responds, he says, Lord, I believe, just help my unbelief. We're like the disciples in Luke 17, that they pray this. They say, Lord, increase our faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you find these moments where your faith is just lacking, where you get to the middle of your day and and the 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 work is piling up on your desk at work or the diapers are starting to mount up at home or whatever else. And it's like you forget that Jesus is Lord and you just kind of press through in the flesh and you just try and make it happen. And just you just do this thing. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you're trying to get through your day. But at the end of the day, you look back and you say, I forgot about the gospel. I forgot about the hope of who I am in Christ. To that, we respond that the important thing about faith is its content, isn't it? What are we trusting in? And notice what Jesus does next in our text. He doesn't just leave them in this state of condemnation. Do you now believe? He gives them a promise. Jesus turns this concept of belief back to himself in verse 33. Look at verse 33 with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, Jesus is describing this coming peace that he has. And Jesus promises his peace as he's overcoming the world, right? Jesus said these things for the sake of peace, right? It's what he says. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Christians should have full access to peace because we know of Christ. Jesus is saying these things so that you and I today, not just these disciples here in John 16, that you and I today might have peace. How do we get that? Notice what he says. He says, take heart. In the world you will have trouble and tribulation. In the world, you're going to have difficulty. You're going to face uh, sinful bosses. You're going to face a world that, that values worldly things. You're going to face all of these difficulties and all of these hardships. But take heart, right? Like kind of, uh, kind of in- be encouraged this morning. Notice the content of it. Take heart. I have overcome the world. What on earth does that mean? it sounds like a super spiritual thing that we kind of toss around to one another. Like, Oh, take heart, brother. Jesus has overcome the world, right? You almost need to say it with a Southern accent. Take heart, brother. Jesus has overcome the world. We could stamp it on our pillows and on our coffee mugs, and we could kind of pass out this message, but what on earth is Jesus referring to in these words that he has overcome the world, It seems like a massive statement for someone to make in the first century in obscure Israel. What on earth is Jesus meaning by this statement? And it's worth noting this morning as we kind of unpack the text and we do our nerd thing, that John uses this word overcome with Regularity in his first epistle in first John, chapter two, John tells young men and old men that they have overcome the evil one, and first John, chapter four, that his recipients will overcome the spirit of antichrist because the spirit in them is greater than he who's in the world. In First John, John 5, verses 4 and 5, everyone born of God overcomes the world. How do we overcome? Well, Overwhelmingly, John has this sense that this is a gospel reflection, that, that Jesus is overcoming the world and its values and its systems because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the upshot is that by Jesus' death, we've received a victory over everything that opposes God. Everything that stands in the way of what God's design and desire is will be brought low. That's the statement in Isaiah, right? Take the the high places and make them low. Take the low places and make them high, right? Jesus is coming, and so he's going to even out everything, and everything that stands in opposition to him will be defeated. See, the truth this morning that Jesus is unpacking for us is that he has overcome the world, but he has disarmed the world's powers, that Jesus has ruled and reigned because of his death and resurrection. I want to take a a moment just to kind of transfer us over to Paul, who's looking back at this and kind of interpreting all that Jesus has said and done. And he takes us to Colossians chapter 2, and he gives us a theology. Go ahead and pull up Colossians chapter 2 on the screen. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made a lie with him by canceling the record of against us with legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing to the cross, disarmed the rulers and put them to open shame. Let's just kind of break this down in three phases. Paul says that we were dead in our uncircumcision of our flesh. Paul uses this metaphor of deadness a lot. It's familiar to us in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. The notion that Paul describes here isn't that spiritually dead people are kind of off the reservation morally. It's not just that you're going to be found in some ditch face down because of your problems, because of your drunkenness, because of your drug addiction, because of everything else. It's not necessarily the problem that's being described. A friend, Scott, directed me to an album by David Bazan. Uh, It's called Curse Your Branches. And it's basically this formerly Christian singer deconstructing his faith, saying, I don't believe this anymore. And in the opening track, Hard to Be, he quotes this line. He's kind of poking at this idea of original sin, saying, we're not actually sinful. We're able to do good things. And the chorus just keeps repeating, hard to be a decent human being. Hard to be, hard to be, hard to be a decent human being. He's saying it tongue-in-cheek. He doesn't believe a word of it. See, the truth is that our problem isn't necessarily that we're not looking like good, nice people. What Paul is saying here is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not that we didn't look like we were nice. It's not that we didn't look acceptable to the world. Our problem was that we couldn't earn a single favor before God. There was no good work that we could perform that would make us right before the heavenly throne of the Father. And so you could do all the things. You could uh, go to uh, the, the meetings to help people out. You could serve turkey on Thanksgiving Day. You could help old ladies cross the street. You could do all of these things. You could uh, just put off patterns of sin. You could try everything. But at the end of the day, you couldn't earn standing with God. See, what Paul's saying here is not that these people don't look like they're nice people. He said, all of us us in our sinfulness cannot earn our standing with God it's like building a staircase to the moon never going to happen look at what Paul says next he says God in our deadness in our, our our sinfulness God made us alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God made us alive by canceling our debt at the cross. You understand the metaphor that Paul's using here? He's like, you have a ledger. Some of you guys are in the accounting field, right? You got this sense of ledger. I'm going to get really in trouble here because I'm not a finance guy. But your, your ledger was filled with deductions, right? You were never making deposits. Lorraine is just laughing at me right now because she's our treasurer. She knows how bad I am about this. But we're always making deductions. We're always pulling out of the account. We, we don't have any righteousness. And we never input any righteousness of our own. So, so there's this idea that we are spiritually dead. And God took that decree of our debt and he nailed it to the cross, right? So that Jesus's deposits, His infinitely righteous deposits, stand over our indebtedness. So that Jesus took all of our IOUs and He placed them on the cross, having paid them in full. See, so Jesus has nailed the ledger of His abundance over the warrant of our arrest. And now our account through faith in Jesus is right with God because of the righteousness of Christ. Now, this all, all of this is Gospel 101, right? This is all the things that we want to unpack every week the glories of Jesus, the forgiveness of sin. But look at what Paul says next in, in verse 15 in this letter to the Colossians where they're dealing with these spiritual heresies, where they're dealing with these spiritualities that they want to just kind of bring them underneath the rubric of Jesus' lordship. Look at what he says in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So God has disarmed all worldly powers through Jesus' resurrection. Amen. These rulers and authorities, the spiritual forces of the world, which Jesus has spoken of here in John 16, are beaten. these men that are going to uh, imprison and beat, and they're going to destroy the property of these disciples, these men are disarmed as sin and death have been beaten these men have no tools no weapons see these spiritual authorities are disarmed that is jesus has taken from them their power they are put to open shame in colossians chapter 2 and and he's That's what he says there, right? And put them to open shame. This is what happened in the first century when you defeated an army. You would kind of strip them of their weapons, sometimes strip them of their clothing, and you would march them down the the center streets of your city uh, to kind of proclaim open shame. So Jesus is marching these spiritual authorities naked and robbed. And now they are defeated by God in Christ. See, Christian, what you need to know this morning is that Jesus' victory over sin and death has disarmed the world. When Jesus died, and he proclaimed victory over sin and over death, the world has no power. They can take away our rights. They can take away our privileges. They can take away our very lives. But in Christ, we still conquer. See, these disciples who are about to be just thrown to the wolves, seemingly. You read the book of Acts, and you, you hear the horrible things that happened to these, to these disciples. This truth is like gold. See, these disciples who were about to be removed from the synagogues, they were about to be beaten and imprisoned. There was no sweeter message to know than that Jesus had conquered the world. See, the wounds themselves would heal. The the property, you know, it it was gone. But their security in Christ was always there, never to be taken from them. You might say, that's great. You know, this theoretical understanding that Jesus has ruled over the world. You know, tomorrow morning I still go back to a workplace that I hate and it's filled with wicked, sinful people. I have a home filled with wicked, sinful people. I am myself a wicked, sinful person. What hope does this passage bring to us? As to that, we say, Christian, there is nothing in this world that should scare us. There's nothing in this world that should scare us. There's nothing in this world that Jesus has not or will not overcome. I just want to give two qualifications to this. One, be careful, and two, be hopeful. First, we want to be careful. Our victory isn't fully yet realized, is it? I was listening to a podcast, and they're describing like uh, the sense that, like, even our bodies. Feel like the weight of, of sinfulness. Like we still feel that like our bodies are broken down. But Paul says it, he says, you know, our, our bodies groan beneath the weight of our sinfulness in Romans chapter eight. And that God has kind of placed that upon us so that we sense our need of redemption in Christ. But even now, like we take medications, we we have surgeries, we go to see doctors because sinfulness pervades the world and our bodies are still broken. And by the way, it's not just that our bodies are broken, it's the world's systems are broken, our, our po- political systems are broken, our churches are broken, people in those churches are broken. It's, everything is still under this rubric of fallenness, and so we want to be careful. Sin and death are fully defeated, but some items still remain for us. Our flesh is still active. You, as long as you live, as long as this heart still beats in your chest before Jesus returns, you will fight against the flesh till your dying day or until Jesus' return. Our enemy, Satan, is not finished. He's still prowling around, prowling around like a, a roaring lion, as Peter says. And the world is still working with its systems. And so we still have this trifecta of the world, Satan and the flesh. A Christian, you don't have to just be overly aware of those things. You can be hopeful. You can be hopeful because our victory is sure. These things that we've just described are not permanent. And our anxiety, anxiety about this world and its problems are misplaced. Like We might get anxious, right? We might get anxious about... Um, uh, society and the things that are happening in society. We can say, look at how the, the society is just going down this, this path, and we can get all kind of twisted around the axle, and we can listen to the podcast, and we can watch the TV shows, and they'll tell us about all the problems that are happening and all the things that are going wrong with society. But at the end of the day, Jesus Christ reigns. And when he comes and establishes his full and final kingdom, those things will be fully eradicated, right? That's what Isaiah 9 says. We're coming up on that Christmas season, right? Of the end of his governance, there will be no end, right? He'll he'll rule and reign with peace and righteousness. So we don't need to be anxious or stressed about the things that are happening around us whether they be societal problems or or spiritual things. There's so much stress in certain parts of Christianity about spiritual warfare. And at the end of the day, Jesus Christ rules and reigns. It doesn't mean that you and I get to demand demons or whatever else. It means that someday Jesus will rule and reign with finality. So here's the truth, Christian. I just want to put this thought in your mind. Our peace is stripped from us when our present circumstance is more real to us than Jesus' victory. Our peace is stripped from us when our present circumstance is more real to us than Jesus' victory at the cross. We let ourselves be overwhelmed by our present realities by not placing them in the context of what Jesus has done. In order to understand transgenderism or Vladimir Putin or whatever else it is, you first have to understand Jesus' victory at the cross. And you have to place that thing within the context of what Jesus is doing in the world. In short, you need a map. We need a map, don't we? We need to understand this is where we are in the 21st century, and here's all the things that are happening. But someday we're going to get to this place where Jesus rules and reigns. And if we look backward, we know that he's already given us the the down payment, as it were, in his death and resurrection. And someday he's taking us to this full and finally realized kingdom. So Christian, don't stress. Don't stress. And I, I guess I would be in the same boat with you. In the last three years, I've been just filled with stress. Does anybody else feel like that? Ryan's talking about, we feel exhausted. I feel exhausted. I didn't have the bravery to raise my hand and say that I felt exhausted. I feel exhausted. I feel worn out. I feel like every new thing is this anxiety. The headline the other day ran, uh, this new disease. You know, There's three new diseases that might come up on the horizon that uh, we don't know how to deal with. And my stress level went up. The wars that are going on around the world, my stress levels go up. The the political situation, my stress levels go up. I'm thinking about my kids, my stress level goes up. I'm thinking about my life, my stress level goes up. And at the end of the day, Jesus Christ rules, right? No stress. Jesus has shown us the map. We know where we're going. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a sense that you are victorious in Christ. Right now, he sits at your right hand with all rule and authority given to him. Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to overcome the world. What I pray, I pray now that you would help us to know it not just to know it in our heads, but to know it in our bones, to know it in our heart, in our mind, in our soul. That, Lord, tomorrow we might face tomorrow's pressures with this sense that you are accomplishing what you've desired in Christ. So, Lord, move our hearts and our minds to trust you. I pray now that you would bless this meal that we're about to have together, that you would make our fellowship sweet as we remember the sweetness of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.